to Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year, a weekly devotional series based on readings relevant to the current liturgical season. You can watch this series live on our YouTube page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in, and now on to this week's discussion. Welcome. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year. My name is William Green, and as always, I'm joined by Pastor Brian King. We're back to our normal format after several weeks away, so we yeah. could both attend our uh, Lenten midweek services. So it's good to be back, Pastor. It is good to be back. Yeah, we took uh, the month of March off. Yeah. Yeah, the last yeah. one we had was, I think, February 28th or something like that. So yeah. Well, we I marched. did. You, you still had some work to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I was I was here in, in the in the sanctuary, but we you and I marched away from each other, as it were, for a yeah. month. So, yep. Yeah. But good to be back. Yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah, yeah likewise. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you. So we're here for our Maundy Thursday episode is what we're going to focus on tonight. Uh, we figured that since, uh, you know, it's Wednesday, Maundy Thursday is tomorrow. Uh, be a good time to focus on the events that happen during uh, Monday Thursday and talk a little bit about the Lord's Supper, which we really haven't done in too much detail on the podcast. No, I don't think we have. So first off, um, Maundy, M-A-U-N-D-Y, Thursday. When you're a little kid, you think, why do we call it Monday Thursday? <laughs> yeah. uh, right? And and people say, why do we call it that? So it just we get the English word mandate from the same Latin word, mando, mandari, whatever. And it's because on Maundy Thursday, we, you know, he commands his disciples to love one another. And with the Lord's Supper, do this. So there's some commands, uh, right. good ones. So we call it Maundy Thursday from that, that mando, not the Mandalorian, not that, <laughs> not that mando, a, right. a different mando, the, the mandate mando. So, okay. Good. That's so Maundy Thursday. I like the Mandalorian though, so I'm gonna bring that in. So. Yeah, there's some interesting Christian themes in the Mandalorian. That, yes, that discussion yes. for another time, I suppose. Another time, another time. Yep. Okay. All right. Should we jump into the readings for the week? Yeah, we were gonna <clears throat> zip through the readings, as it were. And if you're going, <clears throat> excuse me, if you'll be in church tomorrow evening, you may hear these readings again. But they're really worth uh, hearing twice, and especially this week. So, the Psalm is Psalm one sixteen twelve to nineteen. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Now, I did underline just this verse 13 because it, mm-hmm. it's kind of cool. Uh, first off, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What do I give back? Right. Well, what we give back to God is continuing to take, mm. right? It, yeah, it's, that's a good it, point. It's a weird logical progression there between those two verses. Well, uh, gee, Lord, what do I what do I need to do? What, what shall I give to God for all his benefits? Oh, he... I will continue to receive them. Right. Yeah. That's one thing I've always appreciated about the Lutheran theology of the divine service is that I think most Christians, when they go to church on Sunday, think that they're doing something like for God when they go. Right. But right. 
Lutherans have always been very clear that this is a time when we receive things from God. It's for our benefit primarily. Yeah, it's God serving us, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yep. We do respond. We do respond with creeds and hymns and songs and prayers and all that. But the, the point of gathering together on a Sunday morning is is that God serves us. Right. God serving us. So what shall we give back to God for him giving us all those things? Well, we'll lift up the cup of salvation. We'll continue. And it's also interesting that, you know, we're talking about Maundy Thursday and the Lord's Supper. We regard that as a cup of salvation, right? Yeah. And yeah. that, of course, hundreds of years before Christ, they didn't have that communion. Yeah. Like that. So it's kind of it's kind of a neat. It's I don't know. It is. It's like an interesting uh, foreshadowing, or yeah. it's like something that finds its fulfillment in the Lord's Supper that these people probably didn't have in mind explicitly when they were no. saying this, originally writing it. No, and I mean, but you never know what God was inspiring to do and why, and what they were thinking as they were inspired to yeah. write that. So who knows? It's right. It's just kind of neat. It's and, it's kind of like John six in that way because I, I think the consensus, at least among the Lutherans I hang out with, is that John six isn't primarily about the Lord's Supper, uh, that it has broader application beyond the Lord's Supper, but that yeah. it kind of finds its fullest fulfillment in the Lord's Supper, even though it hadn't been instituted yet, and so the disciples didn't have that in mind when they were hearing those words from Jesus. Uh, so it's not explicitly about the Lord's Supper, but it does find fulfillment in the Lord's Supper. And maybe this is kind of a similar instance. It's a good way to phrase that about John 6, um, which is good. And yes, this this does, doesn't it? Right. Kind of lands, finds its home uh, in Jesus, where we should all find our home. Yep. Okay, so we can jump to the um, Old Testament reading, which now remember... Um, the date of Easter shifts because it's on the lunar calendar, on the Jewish calendar. It coincides with Passover, at least mm-hmm. theoretically. And and the whole idea of Passover is what we, when we talk about our Passover lamb and all that. Um, but here, after the Passover event, we have this uh, from Exodus. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the just decrees. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Wonder what the altar guild thought of that. <clears throat> so, the, <laughs> sorry. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, I made a little quip about Aldergild, uh, but <laughs> this underlined section, uh, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Uh, how would people feel if they came to communion and we threw the wine at them? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. So, you know, you have to think, well, what, what are they doing? There's this idea of you're going to get touched by this. Mm-hmm. I think that's the point. This is for you. This is on you. It's good for you it's on you 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's like, I think some of the benefits, one of the benefits of the sacraments, right? Uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, there is this like tactile, tangible element involved that you There's can touch. feel in both cases. Right. Yeah. And so we have something like that even here, right? We do. That's interesting. We do. And here, the people are saying, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. They're making a pledge of obedience. And, and, and Moses is sealing that by putting the blood from the sacrifices on them. Mm -hmm. Behold the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Here's this agreement that you've come to with God. And here's, here's the blood that seals the deal. Right. And you're touched with it. Right. Very appropriate reading for Monday Thursday, I think. Yeah, no kidding. Because let's, you know, we'll jump ahead and Hebrews is going to give us a little more about the blood that seals the deal. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay, let's back up to that first slide for this reading. So first off, Christ, uh, now the priests had to offer sacrifices before they could go in and do all their priestly things, right? Mm -hmm. And the sacrifices they would offer would be bulls and goats and rams and all that. But but Jesus enters into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, by means of his own blood. Right. As he dies, he is given, well, that was his job to come and die. And, and on behalf of that sacrifice, he then enters the holy places. Now, of course, obviously he's sinless. That's his rightful place. But now he's there as our redeemer. Right. 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 So verse 13, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, what we have to bear in mind about the sprinkling of blood that Moses was doing or when we received the Lord's Supper, those things, actions in and of themselves don't earn forgiveness they mm. convey forgiveness mm. yeah can you talk about the distinction a bit yeah that's mean? the crucial point our forgiveness was earned when jesus bled and died on the cross mm. but whether it was the old testament people getting the the blood sprinkled on them to remind them that their sins had put them in such a place where there needed to be a sacrifice that they could be reconciled with god 
or us who understand that Christ shed his blood and therefore has reconciled us to God. It's, it's, it's not our acts of worship that earn those things. It's in those acts of worship and the preaching of the word and administration of the sacraments that convey that forgiveness one right. almost, almost 2,000 years ago. Right. It's, it's not a merit thing. Not like, a merit. Again, yeah. as you said earlier, when we gather for worship, it's God serving us. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially you when know, we think about baptism, the Lord's Supper, the proclaimed word, that's God just coming to us, coming to us, coming to us. And, and again, we, we can think about the tactile aspect of the Lord's Supper, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, where do you do that? Well, you can really do it at the Lord's Supper. Yeah, no kidding. Right? right? Yeah. Okay. So his, the blood of Christ reconciles us to God. And Very that's good. crucial. And here, this verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And hence those wonderful words, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ shed his blood for us to earn forgiveness for us in accordance with the law. Yes, yes. And again, kind of emphasizing that like one-way street, this is something that God does for us. This is something I just thought of. Um, I heard an interesting discussion recently about the use of the word covenant or testament um, in the words of consecration, right? And like, which one is is more appropriate? Because you hear both, right? This is a new covenant, my blood, new testament, my blood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, covenant does at least for us have this kind of like two way implication. Usually, with, right. like you're making a covenant right. with someone. It's it often implies that there's something going on on both parties, where this testament word uh, clearly involves death in most cases, right? And it's kind of more of a one-way street. Right. Your great uncle dies and leaves you a million dollars and you had only met him once in your life type of thing. Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't I didn't do anything to earn that. Right, right. Yeah. So uh, an heir. And that, and that fits in well with the idea that we are heirs of the promise. Right? Yes. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. We're recipients, not, not co-actors. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the Old Testament... But, you know, we just read about the people saying they're going to do what they're supposed to do and God saying yes and amen to that. It does come off a bit more transactional in the Old Testament. And I think that's because it was because of the theocracy deal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was, it was, it was a different way that God was operating with his people by maintaining their uniqueness and their independent stature as a nation. Right. Right. There had to be some, there had to be different laws and rules and regs about that than in the New Testament time, whereas Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, the Father wants people to worship in His Spirit and in truth, and it has really—it has nothing to do with national anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. So you talk about a national church, and I just kind of cringe. You know? Yeah. People use those phrases sometimes about a national church. I think, well, you know, church is universal. Yeah, <laughs> and and you see the state of most national churches these days, and it's not a church well, you generally want to be in. No, and there was banter about that when LCC was formed some 35 years ago about, oh, we have our own national church. And I thought, well, that would make you a cult. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of weird, kind of weird. Okay, we should jump to the the gospel, which we're all familiar with, and we, we hear that all frequently, and especially part of it quite a bit. 
Matthew 26. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Besides, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so this verses 26 and 27, they're just, you know, that these words of institution, as it were, yep. right? yep. He takes bread, blesses it, gives it to his disciples, says, take, eat, this is my body. Mm -hmm. Does the same with the cup, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's the reason why he dies. But he's giving us in the supper, he's giving us his very body and blood. Right. Take, eat, this is my body. Okay. So we as Lutherans, we look at that and say, Okay, he doesn't. He did not say, "Take eat." This represents my body, right? He didn't say, "Take eat." This bread has turned into my body, right? He says, "Take eat." This is my body. So maybe we're being a little simple-minded. I'll say simplistic on the one hand, but no, we're simply saying we're going to take Jesus at His word. We're going to say, "Wow, somehow God manages to." Um, give us his body, Jesus gives us his body and blood in, with, and under that bread and wine, even though we can see it's still bread and it's still wine. And Paul talks about the cup and the bread and things like that. So they, those don't disappear. Right. But he joins him, his body and blood to those elements when we receive them in the Lord's Supper. Right. Now being careful, I almost misspoke there when we receive them. So in the Lord's Supper, we say that Christ is truly present. We also say you need four things to have the Lord's Supper. Okay. You need bread and wine. Mm -hmm. You need words spoken over them, these, these words. Now, these words are not a magic incantation, okay? Right. It's not some hocus-pocus thing, and that's where hocus-pocus comes from. The priest saying hawk est, et cetera. People made fun of it. It's not that. It's not a magical incantation. It's simply doing what Jesus did, speaking mm -hmm. over those elements of bread and wine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You then distribute those elements, people consume them. When you have those four things within our Lutheran camp, we say, that's the Lord's Supper. Right. That's right. it. Right. So th this is important. There's So we want to spend the rest of our time talking about like kind of the Lutheran view of communion and what this entails. So this, this brings us to maybe our first misconception. So there are some people who think that faith on the part of the recipient is a necessary condition for 
the presence. Right. right. And that, and that sadly, that kind of snuck into the Anglican 39 articles because they said that someone who um, doesn't believe does not receive the body and blood of Christ. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I didn't it's, know that. It's in there. It's in there. Hmm. Um, so, so that would imply that you have to have faith to put Christ there. Right. Well, I don't think I have the ability of faith or not to put Christ anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So now receiving the benefits, yes, you receive the benefits by faith. Right. Exactly. But you don't put Christ in the supper by faith. Right. Right. So if an atheist comes up for communion and somehow is able to receive it, they're still getting the body Christ, of Christ. Christ and that's right. why Paul talks about warnings that you should recognize or discern the body and blood of Christ and that some are, are sick and some will fall asleep because they, they haven't done that. We're, right. We're well, to receive the sacrament worthily. Yeah. I mean, the presence of Christ isn't a good thing for everyone, right? No. Uh, because in if you don't have that faith, you're drinking and eating in judgment rather than receiving the benefits that were intended. Right. And so, like from those warnings that Paul gives us regarding worthy reception of the Lord's Supper, yeah. we we can know that it's not the faith that makes Christ present in the bread and the the wine, right? Right, because the unworthy receive him as well, right, just to their detriment. To their detriment, right. So it's the same with medication. You you know, a, a medication can help one person, but it can harm another. Mm-hmm. And right. We have to regard the Lord's Supper that way, in that you need we instruct our people in what it what it means, what the Lord's Supper means according to the Bible, and that Christ is truly present according to His own words. Take eat, this is my body. Um, take drink, uh, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, namely His blood. So we we want people to understand that this is Christ's true body and blood, in with and under the bread and wine, in a wonderful way it's it's a bit of a mystery but we believe it but you can receive it to your harm as paul warns us or to your benefit as we are taught right now that that brings us to another point that is often a point of contention among lutherans and non-lutherans especially around this time of year when there are people of different faith traditions gathering in the same household and extended family and whatnot this idea of closed communion Right. Uh, if you if you don't think that it that you can be harmed by it, if you don't believe those words of Paul, if you don't think there's any possibility of harm, then closed communion makes no sense. Right. Okay. Or if you think it's like merely symbolic. Yeah. Well, the words or the supper. The supper. <laughs> well, well, that's what he's talking about. You not not recognizing the body of yeah. Christ, not discerning. Yeah. So if you think it's symbolic, then it it can be harmful to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if yeah. you're if you're a Christian who believes that um when you partake of the Lord's Supper, all you're doing is like a memorial uh ceremony. Right. Where the blood or the wine and the bread only symbolize the blood and the body. If if you believe it's all purely symbolic, then right. you're not going to see any detriment in taking all of these things together regardless of your denomination or any detriment for anyone else who may or may not believe exactly so it was the people the the reformed people back in luther's time who made the comment that uh, you know christ is as far from the sacrament as heaven is from earth hmm. you know, <laughs> really that, yeah it went that it went that severe well um, i i know uh another famous reformed 
quote is the finite cannot contain the infinite right right and that was also applied to the lord's supper because you in the reformed view you're saying that an infinite god is somehow present in this finite host right (laughs) well the fact that he's infinite would mean that he kind of has to be there anyway (laughs) that's a good point (laughs) yeah Yeah, Yeah. and, and it's interesting you know we do discern between god's omnipresence in his sacramental presence. That's right. Yeah. That's a good distinction to make. It is. But yeah. If you believe, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. The, the idea of sacramental presence is really important because it clears up a lot of misconceptions. One, it makes it distinct from his omnipresence, right? Uh, because we are saying that he's present in a special way in the supper. But also it clears up some of these other ideas that maybe uh, contribute to some of the things that we might perceive as errors in uh, like Roman Catholicism, that it's not like a local presence. And the reformers were hesitant to say physical presence. Physical presence is not a term that's typically used by Luther or the reformers to describe uh, what's happening at the Lord's Supper, right? Because they didn't. Here's the problem. Whenever you're talking about the Lord's Supper as a Lutheran, when you're talking to someone in the reform camp, like a Baptist or whatever, you, they probably look at you and think you sound like a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. When you're talking to the Roman Catholic, they think you sound like some Baptist or Presbyterian. Okay. <laughs> right. So we're walking this sort of middle ground. Uh, but in reality, it's odd because we're the only ones who simply say, um, we're just going to take Jesus' word at his word and then, and then not get crazy about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, maybe that's something we should talk about now. Like what actually is the difference between our view and the Roman Catholic view? What, what do you perceive as the primary difference? Well, one is there in, in, in the mass, the priest is offering a sacrifice to God, the unbloody sacrifice. Mm -hmm. First huge difference. It's not God serving us. It's someone serving God. Right. Secondly, the teaching is in transubstantiation that the bread and wine disappear, that they turn into the body and blood of Christ. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's huge. We, we still see that there's bread, there's wine, and, and that it hasn't, there's no transubstantiation. Right? Yeah, that's always now, been kind of a weird doctrine in my mind. Well, yeah, and part of that is, I mean, it does, you kind of want to impress upon people, hey, this is serious. Mm-hmm. And so they just went too far. Mm-hmm. Okay. In in my mind. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily out of, you know, a bad intent to try no, to impress no. upon people the reality of the true presence. They just went too far. Right. And okay. right. And like, if you look at Aquinas's argument for transubstantiation, he does have like an exegetical argument that I think he's making in good faith um, that like when he says this, he's referring to uh, like, you know, the host substance. Um, and so in his mind, you can't have something be uh, like the body and bread at the same time and in the same sense. And so one has to kind of disappear to make room for well, the other. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. See, what happens is we try to explain these things with our with our finite minds mm-hmm. and, and we fall short. And that's where mm-hmm. people get into trouble. It, it, they say too much. So on the one hand, you have the Roman Catholics who talk about transubstantiation. They talk about the sacrifice that's made um, by the priest, et cetera, et cetera. It's a good work that they do for God. Uh, on the other hand, you have the, whom we'll just 
put into one big under one big tent called the Reform Group that does not believe in the real presence or true presence. They believe that it's a symbolic representation, and they would then emphasize the words of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. Right. Now, of course, of course, we do it in remembrance of Jesus, mm-hmm. but they're going to emphasize that to the exclusion of take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. Right, exactly. Yeah. Where we just take the scripture, scriptural words and say, this is what it is, and this is, you know, we talk about it, we explain it, we write books about it, but we try to t- tread that, that fine line, you know, and say, let's just deal with Jesus' words and Paul's words about the warnings of it and things like that. Right, exactly, exactly. Okay. And um, so, yeah, so even though we disagree with uh, our Roman Catholic brothers on this, um, I don't know, would you agree that the Roman error is somehow less severe than the uh, like evangelical or reformed error? Luther seemed to indicate something like that. Well, he yeah. Said, uh, he said something along the lines of, I would rather have the blood of Christ with a papist than mere wine with the fanatics. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 the other concern, I mean, yeah, they're both wrong. The, the other concern I would add to um, the Roman Catholic teaching is that it's a good work we do for God. Yeah, yes. Right. Which makes it doubly bad. Mm-hmm. Um, not only are they wrong in their teaching about what happens, but then what's the purpose of having communion, mm-hmm. right? So uh, one or the other, they're both so far from what I believe that I'm, I'm just yeah. not going to, I'm just not going to answer your question. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'll be like the starving donkey between, between two bales of hay that were equidistant, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can't make up his mind and starves to death. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll just be, I'll be that donkey and, and that's enough said. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Now, the readings that we went over tonight uh, also got us into um, some other issues as well that we wanted to talk about. And some of these yeah. are debated even among Lutherans uh, in the LCC and the LCMS. Uh, one being the issue of the common cup. So if, can, we, can we spend a second to talk about that, uh, perhaps? Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's kind of weird um, for me personally because both churches that I've served up until this time in the pandemic, um, full time, just had the common cup. Mm-hmm. And but but a lot of my ministry has spent um, communing individuals in nursing homes and hospitals with individual cups. Mm-hmm. Literally bought a box of a thousand individual cups, and I said, "Well, that should last a long time." And about eight years later, so I had to buy another box. And I started to think, okay, doing these individual cups a couple thousand times with people, yeah, that's a lot, right? Yeah. Before we go any further, we should probably say what the debate is, right? For those who might not be familiar. Yeah, why don't you frame the debate? Because I'm not sure what the debate is. Sure. There there are some people who would say that um, because the words of institution mention a single cup, uh, that that's what we ought to use for communion and that we it's best practice to not use these like individual cups. <clears throat> The way that many Lutheran churches do it, so that's that's kind of the debate, um, like the for or the against the individual cups, right? And less. and you've heard my explanation that well, then we need to be in an upper room. There needs to be thirteen of us. One of us needs to leave in the middle of the supper. <laughs> I mean, if it, so, there it is described as a as an individual cup. Uh-huh. One neat aspect of the one cup is that it is one, and we all share that one cup, right? 
But we have to understand that the, the true blessings from the supper come from receiving Christ's body and blood, where those attendant circumstances of being one cup and a little bit nice emotionally one cup, um, the, the true benefit is receiving Christ's body and blood. Yeah. Is it is it nicer, better to have one cup? Probably, yeah. Right. Yeah. Is, they, it, is it okay to have individual cups? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we're just about all of us would agree is that anyone who says that the Lord's Supper is somehow invalid or diminished, if, or diminished in its in its uh, proper effects, uh, if you use individual cups, is mistaken. Right. Yeah. Because There's, you need those four things, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Now, uh, that being said, Perhaps there is something to be said about the sort of confession that using an individual cup makes uh, in and above the the individual cups. Because there is this sort of like uh, communal aspect that you confess through using a common cup that you don't have through the individual cup that might make it preferable. Um, but but like you said, it's not something I think we need to be uh, legalistic about. No. So, so here's the question. So you go to a really big church and they only use the common cup, but there's four of them. (laughs) You've been in churches where that happened, right? Yeah. uh, The only time I've seen that done in my personal experience is when I went to the youth gathering, the LCMS youth gathering when I was in high school. But yeah, so so the point is, yeah, it may be better to have one cup. Uh, Maybe it's better than having four. Uh, you know, but but it, it it does give a witness the one cup. It does better show what's taking place. We're sharing the the very blood of Christ in that one yeah. cup. Okay, but you could t- make the same argument that we really shouldn't be using individual wafers. That we should be taking one loaf and breaking it off as we go. Which nobody's doing that, right? Well, right. On occasion, it will happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so I think that's ultimately where we land on a lot of these extra. Um, Adiaphora when it comes to components of the liturgy or like ceremonies, right? Because that, that's another big debate in the Lutheran Church, like high church, low church. What what degree of ceremony do you want in the divine service? And I think all of these things come down to like what these actions are intended to confess. Uh, whenever someone insists that they be done legalistically, like that, that's wrong. But it, right, and and even to the point where. If, if it were prevailing wave in our church where you had to have only the only the common cup, I would I would quit using it for a time mm. to make a, a confessional statement. Right, right, you know, right. Fair yeah, enough. Don't yeah. tell me I have to do that. That's not biblical. Right, right. Yeah. That's I mean, interesting. it's interesting that the Bible, the New Testament, the Old Testament's full of direction about worship. The New Testament has hardly any. Mm, that's true. It's true. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. There's one last thing we wanted to briefly good. touch on. Yeah. Uh, which is the issue of online communion, which has been a huge controversy in I think both of our synods uh during the pandemic. Well, yeah, it it, it, it has. I think it's been um in controversy in other churches too. Mm-hmm. And there's just a couple things that just a couple of thoughts I'd have. One is it's I mean the the thief on the cross did not receive the Lord's Supper. Right. Okay. Right. And, you know, those words right from Jesus' mouth to his ears, today you'll be in the in paradise. <laughs> okay. 
the Lord's Supper is a wonderful gift meant to strengthen our faith and assure us of the of the fact that Christ shed his blood for us. It's mm-hmm. a faith strengthener. It's a means of grace. The way the word is, the way baptism is, these are means of grace. It's the way God conveys his forgiveness to us. Right. So being deprived of the Lord's Supper for a time isn't good, but sometimes it happens. Mm-hmm. And and that might should make us hunger and thirst for it more. Right. Um, the the whole idea of online communion um, goes against the idea that we do practice close communion. Mm. And how do you or close communion? How do you do that? How do you faithfully be a steward of this mystery if you're simply speaking words out into the ether? Yeah. Yeah. There's another point though that I would question, and we have to say, well, is it actually the Lord's Supper? The mm-hmm. words of institution aren't some magic incantation, mm-hmm. nor is it some magic incantation that has to be spoken by an ordained clergy. Mm-hmm. And that that online communion um, model gives the idea that the pastor speaks magic words because he has the power to, because as I've heard a pastor say, you know, I'm a channel of God's grace. I almost threw up when I heard those words. But... <laughs> But the whole idea is that, no, first off, you don't need the Lord's Supper to get to heaven. Secondly, it's not some magic incantation. And and thirdly, you cannot practice pastoral care um, virtually. Right. Not that way. Not in respect to the Lord's Supper. Right. Right. So so you're reacting against this like Roman Catholic idea that um, ordination gives you some sort of like indelible mark on your soul. Yes. And that is the only thing that like even makes you able to consecrate the oh yeah there was a shamazel and i think in that one priest might not have been baptized properly so they were questioning whether his whole ministry was yeah yeah no that's right yeah just a couple years ago yeah and i just think wow wow that because if you make the person the nexus for god's grace and not not the word the the vehicle for god's grace then you get in all these weird and i quite frankly i i I think it's paganism Mm. I think it's pagan, and I think it's a bit um, of spiritualism, and it's bizarre because, you know, God is not bound. He he doesn't have to work through that person, that person, that person. He chooses to work through all of his Christian people. Right. Right. Yeah. So this now idea that being that, said, yeah, uh, so we don't we don't believe in like the indelible mark on your soul thing with ordination. No. Right? No. No. Fair enough. We're uh, friends. However, in our confession. Um, the Oxford Confession, right? It it says that uh, that you ought to be have a regular call. To- yeah, we do not permit someone to teach, preach, teach, or minister the sacraments without a regular call. Right. So there, of course, is within an institution, you have to maintain the integrity of the institution, its teaching and its practice. Right. And how do you do that? Well, you make these guys who are pastors, you make them go to school for a long time, mm-hmm. and then you then you interview them and you work with them and then you certify them at ordination and say, you know, you have the requisite skills to be a pastor and now you've been called by a congregation. We say yes and amen to that. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole idea of, but once you work hard to develop your theology within a certain denomination, you want to hold on to that, mm-hmm. the, the theology and the practice. And you do that through your ordained clergy. Right. It's the congregation that has the powers of the keys, according to Luther. Right. The congregation asks someone to to hold them and exercise them on their behalf. Right. The clergyman doesn't have that power on his own. 
the congregation asks them to exercise that power, which is given to all Christian people. Right. Okay. Right. So, so uh, would it be safe to say then that that article in the Oxford Confession, it's more of a practical point rather than a theological point, whereas with... Well, okay, I, I don't like to separate practice from theology on the one hand, like, you know, but yeah, it is a practical um, point to maintain order and for the benefit of maintaining good theology. Right, okay, I see. Because those are important, right? Good pastoral practice sure. and good theology are important, and that goes to, to do that. So that that line from the Confessions goes to further that cause, that we're going to do things decently and in order. No, there's nothing special about a pastor, like spiritually, but he has training and and uh, education, and then is called by a congregation to do those things on their behalf. It's a mm -hmm. privilege to do that. So mm -hmm. it's great, but it's not as though I, as a pastor, have some indelible character or some super spiritual power. I wish I did, <laughs> but I don't. And nor do we theologically say that I do. <laughs> right. We're not pagan. We're not into spiritualism. And we're not into sort of the Roman idea of a hierarchy and all the sacerdotalism and the apostolic succession. We're not into all that stuff. Mm -hmm. okay? Right. Right. Okay. 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 Good. Oh, wow, that was good. a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. Though. Now the online, the online communion, um, I know one pastor, or, you know, you read all these things during the pandemic where one pastor would go and he would place the elements like on the porch and then back up a little bit. And, and preside at communion for a family. Mm. That's great. That's a yeah. workaround. It's a workaround. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay. I think we've burned up the clock, Will. Yeah, we, we have. But, right. but we haven't done this in, in, you know, a month, so of course. I know. Yeah, I know. It's good. It's good to get back at it. It is. So. It is. Good to see you. Okay. Uh, should we... Do you have a collect of the day? I do. And I I'll, I'll pray the one for Monday, Thursday. Monday Thursday. Don't say Monday Thursday because then you confuse people. Okay. <laughs> You're right, right. okay. All right. Oh Lord, in this wondrous sacrament, you have left us a remembrance of your passion. Grant that we may so receive the sacred mystery of your body and blood that the fruits of your redemption may continually be manifest in us. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. <laughs>